Welcome back, everyone. I'm Tony Brown, and you're listening to Firearms Cafe, the show where we discuss the philosophies of responsible firearms ownership, as well as the relevant issues and challenges that we face in the current gun culture. Hey, everybody. What is going on? Today is Sunday. It's the 7th of April, 2019. I am in the mobile studio. I've got about a half an hour, so I'm going to try and belt this out relatively quick. Let's go ahead and get our contact info out of the way. If you would like to contact me, there is the voicemail, which is area code 206-745-2731. If, however, you would prefer to send in an email or record your own audio, the email address is firearmscafe at protonmail.com, all one word firearmscafe at protonmail.com. Over on the website, which is firearmscafe.com, you'll find buttons for Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. There's also a donation button. If you're ever so inclined, you like the show and you'd like to show some support my way, that would be great. Okay, let's go ahead and let's jump in with what's been going on. And there has been a ton of stuff that has been going on. I will talk a little bit, although it has been a little bit of time. I had kind of planned on talking about this a little bit earlier, and this is the Jesse Smollett case and what's going on with that. And some people would say, well, how does that tie into gun stuff or Second Amendment stuff? Well, what it does is it illustrates how the courts work, how the police work. And if you're ever involved in a situation, you may go through something similar. So, uh, and that's the main thing I want to talk about. It also illustrates some of the corruption that's going on inside the justice system, we could say in Illinois and Chicago, but also it's, it's not just there. It's, it's systemic throughout our whole country. Uh, But anyway, we'll get to that stuff here in a little bit. The first thing I wanted to talk about was something that I thought I would never see, which was the, mm, I guess we'd call it maybe a reversal of some of the magazine capacity limits that certain states have, and especially in California. And one judge basically said that, and I guess I'm going to, pretty much simplify it. I've done sort of a lot of reading about it and looking into things. And a lot of it is very confusing. For those of you guys that don't know, in California, you are limited to a detachable magazine. It can't hold more than 10 rounds. And if you look at certain rifles, so like AR-15s, AK-47s, tons of other uh, other type of rifles that have detachable box magazines, most of them are going to have a capacity of about 30 rounds. Some of them are going to be 20. Uh, but at, at the very least, you would say most of those would have at a minimum probably 20 rounds or would make magazines for them. But if we look and say, well, what is the most popular? What's the most common use? We would say that the 30-round magazine is the most common. There are 40-round magazines. There are 
there are drums, there are, you know, things that hold up to, you know, 60, up to, you know, 100, that type of thing. There are five rounds as well. There are, uh, again, like I said, the 20 rounds and 10 round magazines. So there's all sorts of different numbers. But if we looked at what is most commonly used and what's most commonly owned, and we'll say, let's say for an AR-15 or an AK-47 type rifle, the most common magazine as far as round capacity, meaning what the round, how many rounds you can hold, are going to be 30. So in California, like I said, they had, punch, uh, had passed a bunch of laws saying that, well, you can't have anything over 10 rounds and you can't import them. You can't blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing. They can't be sold here. They can't be traded, you know, given all this other stuff. Everything has to be 10 rounds. Well, recently there was a, uh, and again, I'll just, I'll kind of streamline everything. Anyway, there, there was recently a court matter where that was challenged. And what happened was that the judge, and I forget his name off the top of my head. But anyway, he basically said, look, this is a common use item and it is unconstitutional to put limits. It, it goes against sort of the Second Amendment because it's, it's a commonly used item. It's also, a, and this would be, well, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. It's a commonly owned item, I should say. And it's also commonly used for lawful purposes, meaning that of the majority of people that use, that have, that own these things and use them, it is a very, very small minority of people that use them expressly for the commission of crime or expressively for the purpose of committing unlawful acts. It's not like you would say, oh, this, um, this particular product only has a, a nefarious purpose. Uh, again, that's, it's, that's kind of going down a slippery slope. But anyway, you could, you could probably state some examples of certain things that you would say, well, this would only be used to commit a crime, that type of thing. So anyway, we're kind of getting down in the weeds. So what had happened is they reversed that, or they, they said, okay, well, it's unconstitutional, so you can have them. And so all of a sudden, many companies were starting to say, okay, well, let's start shipping a bunch of 30-round magazines into California. And also people who lived there who maybe had modified their magazines were like, oh, well, I can, I can take this, this block out now. I can take this, this, this shorter spring and this this other type of thing out that modified the magazine to where it would only hold 10 rounds. It was maybe pinned or something like that. And then shortly after that, they said that, and I think it's by, I can't remember the date when they said, was it on Friday or something like that? Anyway, they said, oh no, there's a stay. You can't import anything, even though it's okay to have those here. We're still banning the sale and the importation, uh, the sale of them in the state and the importation from other states into this state of magazines. And I hope I've got that right. From everything I read, that's basic. And this, again, is a simplified version of it. But basically, that's what they're saying. And then there was a certain date where they were going to say, OK, once that date rolls around, you can't do it anymore. So tons of people have been trying to get and companies have been trying to get stuff in. As far as companies and, and places of businesses sending things in they would probably face legal action. And so unless they got it in within that window, I think though, at this point, probably the, with this particular ruling, 
I, th I think that it may be over as far as the 10 round ban for California. Uh, I don't think that you can probably legitimately say this is a common practice. You know, this, the, the, um, the limiting of the magazine capacity is a common practice. There are other states that do it. I think there's about maybe nine other, maybe 10 other states that have magazine round limitations, maybe not to 10. Uh, but if I think Colorado has them, but again, once this, this ruling has been made, I think it's kind of going to be a losing battle going forward. How long that will take, I don't know. And I could be wrong. You know, it could be that that, that the lawyers who are going to argue for the ban, for the magazine restriction, are going to be saying things like, well, we've had this stuff in place since the 70s. We've had it, you know, in, in place for, you know, 40, almost 50 years in some places. So we'll have to see how that is. But... I did think that it was a, a victory for us. I think it was a, maybe I shouldn't say victory. It was a very large step in the right direction uh, that puts us on a path where people will be able to, you know, own, own, own property. I've always been, I don't, know if, I don't know if I use the word fascinated, but I've always kind of been, um, I guess it is fascinating. I have been fascinated about that. As you guys know, I live in Arizona. And so California is our neighboring state. And when we go there recently, I, I talked about that we had gone to Hawaii. And Hawaii is one of those states that has magazine uh, restrictions, very anti-gun. It's run primarily by the Democratic Party. And you could say the same thing in California. California is run primarily by the Democratic Party. I'm sure there are counties and towns and places that are more uh, Republican run. There's hardly any, I'm sure, that are libertarian run, but I'm sure there are pockets of places that are very different. You know, if you look at Northern California as opposed to Southern California, you have very different things politically. Uh, but primarily, and where most of the laws are going to come out of, are going to come out of a very sort of anti-gun leaning type of politician who in general, not always, but in general is going to have a D by their name as opposed to an R or an L uh, or, you know, a Green Party or this, that or the other thing. Generally, the Democrats are way more anti-gun and we're seeing that in their, in their campaigning platforms and in their rhetoric that they're, that they're doing now. We're seeing that they are much more out in the open about being anti-gun. And again, it's part of it is I think it is more acceptable just because you of who is in the White House now. And so it's more acceptable to kind of draw a line in the sand because if you say if you're against Trump and his administration, you get a lot of points by drawing a line in the sand and saying, you know, I'm you know, not one step further, this, that, and the other thing. And you you garner um social brownie points. And so it's easy right now to sort of demonize and, and put people in the sort of the, you know, in the us versus them camp. And it's easy to put people in the them camp and to uh, dehumanize the other sides. And both sides do it. Let's, let's make no mistake about that. Getting back to what a lot of the candidates are doing now is they're really coming out and they are, they're not mincing words too much anymore. It used to be they would kind of use certain catchphrases 
Uh, and they're still using some of those, but the rhetoric is more, and it's, and it's not just a one-sentence blurb. They're having full discussions about which guns should be banned, which guns should be taken away, which guns should be destroyed, which guns should, you know, you be allowed, which guns should the government allow you to have. And uh, before, you know, I, I, I go too far on the Democratic side, Let's let's make no mistake and let's be very, very clear that in the first two years of the Trump administration, when we had a Republican controlled Senate and a Republican controlled House and a Republican controlled White House, they did nothing. The Republicans did nothing. They could have at the very least, I think they could have got the Hearing Protection Act put through. But you had Paul Ryan that basically, who didn't want that in the first place, who basically took it, took it off the table. Again, don't, you know, this is what you get when you have a two-party system. And, and I've talked about it before, but basically if you're a Republican and you're, and you're a Republican politician, what are you going to say to the gun owners? Are you going to say, well, I'm going to work real hard, I'm going to listen to you, I'm going to do what you want, and I'm going to try and be a really good representative for you and, and try and represent excuse me, the Second Amendment as best I can, the best of my ability. We're going to push things through. Or are you going to say, you know what, I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to, I don't really care too much about guns one way or another because I'm sort of in an elite privileged class, and if I want a gun, it doesn't matter what kind of gun it is, I'll be able to get it. I'll be able to pull the strings. Plus, I'm surrounded by guys with guns. I'm protected. So I know that you are basically trapped. So if I get around to maybe doing some gun legislation, I'll do it. But eh, I don't really care. I'm, I probably won't vote you know, for anti-gun stuff. But, you know, bump stock bans, red flag laws, all that stuff. I'll probably vote for those. And what are you going to do? Who else are you going to turn to? Are you going to cast your ballot for me? Who's going to do that? Or are you going to pass, cast your ballot for the Democrat? Who's going to do those things and go further? At least I'm not going to go further. So you should be happy with that. You should just take your lumps, get a smile on your face and just realize you got no choice. Which attitude do you think that they're going to have? Are they going to be willing to meet you halfway or are they just going to say, you'll take what I give you? And at this point, because everything is so divided, the Republicans can say, you're going to take what I give you. I don't have to really listen to you. I can sort of do whatever it is I want because I know you're not going to vote for the other side. Because on the other side, you're a demon. You've got no representation. And on the other side, you're going to be marginalized and crushed. And it's the same thing that the Democrats do, too, as well. Although it's funny, you look at kind of the, the fringe elements of, on, the, on, the, on the far left. And, you know, you see so much stuff in the media. I don't know. There's got to be a lot of other Democrats that aren't that far leaning or that aren't coming out and saying at least that, that they're that far left-leaning. But I guess it gets you press. And if that kind of stuff is going to get you press, that's what you're going to go along with. You know, you've got the Cory Bookers, the Kamala Harris's, the Elizabeth Warrens, Robert Francis O'Rourke's, who are basically out there 
going as far left as they can. They're, they're pushing as far left as they can. And like I had talked about with um, the guy who's going to be running for Senate out here, and his first name is Mark, uh, Mark Kelly, and he's the astronaut, or former astronaut, I guess. Anyway, what he's going to do, and I can almost guarantee you what he is going to do, and it looks like what the party is going to do out here, is they're probably going to run just him. There may be some other people that are going to come out, but they're not, I don't, there was a guy who was maybe going to give him a run for his money, but that guy has kind of decided to step down. And the type of campaign that this Mark Kelly is going to run is he's going to be sort of seen as a very center-left Democrat. He's not, he's not, at least out here in the campaign, he's not going to go too far off of that. He's going to appear to be a moderate. I don't think he's a moderate at all, especially if we're looking at guns, issues about guns. And why is that important to you guys who live in Iowa or Idaho or Texas? Well, the reason that's important and, and that race kind of means something is Arizona used to have Republicans. Now, the Republicans we had were hot garbage. We had McCain and we had Flake. But for the most part, those guys could kind of be counted on to do, at least not to do too much harm, which is, is not what you want to have in a politician who's representing you, especially when it comes to firearms issues. Right now we have McSally, who was appointed, and she's Republican. And then we have, and she, takes, and she took over McCain's spot. And then we have Kristen Sinema, who won against McSally in a relatively close race. And she took over Flake's spot. And she won basically being a a very moderate, she campaigned as a very moderate, just left of center Democrat. And she campaigned saying, look, I want to do what's best for Arizona. I'm not necessarily interested in playing poly, party politics. I want to do what's best for the people here. And now, and to be to be clear, clear and to be fair, she did, you know, she was running as a Democrat. She wasn't running as an independent or anything like that. So you understand that there are certain platforms that she's going to support. One of those will be she is probably going to be more anti-gun than she's going to be pro-gun. And McSally, when we look at her, is probably going to be more pro-gun than she will be anti-gun. But we're going to have to kind of wait and see on some of this stuff. Anyway, McSally still kind of comes across, and one of the reasons I think she lost is she does come across as a little unrelatable. I don't. I hesitate to use the word cold, but you know that's how she was described by a lot of people. But she does kind of come across, and also the way she ran her campaign was basically, "Hey, I'm Trump Jr. Whatever Trump wants, I want." And because, and I think she would have been better served, and she probably would have won. The uh, the election had she said, and I'm Martha McSally, and this is what I do. And I agree with Trump on this, but I disagree with him on that. And I think she might have got some crossover votes. I think had she had run a campaign like that, I think she would have, I think she would have won. I think it still would have been close, but I, I still think she would have won. Another thing that helped cinema was that she was sort of alone in her primary. So she didn't have to have a lot of not knock down, drag out battles and stuff like that. Uh, anyway, we're kind of rambling a little bit too much on politics, but kind of getting back to the thing of will will somebody like Mark Kelly win in 2020 when the election comes up and McSally has finishing out McCain's term and she has to run for re-election. Now, she will be an incumbent with two years, but 
what kind of campaign is she going to run? Is she going to sort of distance herself a little bit from Trump? Is she going to sort of run on her own merits? It's, it will be very, very interesting to see. And if she loses, which I think is a very probably real possibility, if she loses against somebody like Kelly, that means we're basically going to have two anti-gun people. Uh, Kelly for sure is anti-gun. You, you know, his wife was Gabby Gifford. She got shot down in Tucson. She survived, fortunately. Uh, but of course, they are anti-gun. Uh, they are not pro-gun at all, and they are going to be influenced and 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 vote in that manner. So. What that means is that we we lose another possibly non-restrictive or non. If it, when I'm I'm not trying to say a pro-gun person, but what we're what we're actually losing is someone who probably wouldn't strike a blow against us if 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 Kelly runs and they're and believe me, what they're going to do, they're going to play the astronaut card. They're going to play that he was a veteran. They're going to play this, that, and the other thing. All you know, uh, and they're really going to play up that he is a moderate. So anyway. Kind of enough on that stuff. It will be interesting to see what happens in in going forward with these magazine capacity caps or bans, however we want to call it, uh, or restrictions. Let's and I, you know what? I think I'm going to maybe draw this to a close. We'll, we'll maybe start with about five minutes. I'll draw this section. I still want to talk a little bit about the uh, Jesse Smollett case, and again. It demonstrates, you know, some corruption, some things like that. But there's there's a lot of misinformation out there. Well, maybe what we'll do is we'll let's get started on some of that. We'll we'll talk a little bit about what happened with the Jesse Smollett thing. So what happened with him is was that he basically excuse the creaking there. Oh wait, they're coming out. So I'm gonna I'm going to uh, actually call this to a close, and we'll we'll jump back here in a second. Hey everybody, what is going on? I am coming back with you guys. It's uh, a little bit later in the day and I'm actually in a different vehicle than I normally drive. I'm having to do some test driving for one of my relative's cars. We're trying to uh, narrow down some problems that we've been having with it. So anyway, the noise may be a little bit different. I knew I was going to have this car and sort of be doing a 30, 40 minute drive with it. So I thought, well, I'll bring my stuff and we'll go ahead and continue with the show. So the mic may or may not pick up sort of more of the car noise and the car noise may be a little bit different. So we'll, we'll kind of go from there and we'll sort of see what's happening with that. Now, earlier we were talking about the Smollett case. And for those of you guys that don't know, what appears to have happened is that he staged an attack on himself and then made the rounds in the press and did all this other stuff. He said that there were two uh, white gentlemen who attacked him, used racial epitaphs, poured bleach on him, put a noose around his neck, all this other stuff. And this hap this uh, this happened, or this uh, this supposed attack happened in Chicago, when it was about what minus ten degrees or something outside, and it was two in the morning. So there were all these red flags, 
And the reason that we're talking about some of this stuff is I do want to talk, like I said before, a little bit about kind of the judicial system, kind of how it works. Uh, But also we're talking about this because it really demonstrates the fact that the media will ignore stuff or give you softball questions if you fit, if the story fits the message that they want to tell or if it fits their narrative, I guess is another way of saying it. So when we look at the larger narrative, there's there's a couple of things. You could say, okay, well, here's a minority man who was attacked by uh, members of a different race solely based on his race, and so it was a hate crime. But the larger thing is that they were able to tie it into Trump. Because one of the things that Smollett said was that, oh, these guys had MAGA hats on. And they also shouted that this is Trump country now. Meaning that not only was it racially motivated, but that it was sort of inspired and brought about because of the uh, rhetoric and the vitriol that is Donald Trump. Now, as a bit of an aside here, I am not a Trump supporter. I didn't vote for the guy. I, I don't think he is the mastermind that everybody says that he is, that he's this great negotiator. I don't think, uh, but regardless of all that stuff, what we see is that the media and that a lot of people who listen to that media or consume that media want to have a certain type of story and they want that story to have a certain narrative. And they want those stories to confirm what they already believe. They don't want stuff that necessarily challenges them or that makes them think. They want thing that the stories and confirmation of a very narrow narrow worldview. And we've seen this happen and then the reason that this bears talking about is we've seen this happen over and over again in the media, especially when it comes to guns. There are thousands and thousands of stories a month of people who use firearms in a legitimate, lawful manner. There are stories of gun clubs at schools, shooting teams, rifle teams, things like that at schools. They don't ever do pieces on that. There are stories of uh, people that use firearms as uh, recreation. So the shooting sports, you have uh, shooting matches. You don't really ever hear about that. There are also people, I'm sure, that use it as, uh, as, as a form of therapy. There are people, I'm sure, that maybe they wouldn't necessarily call it that, but it is a way for them to relax and unwind, especially if they're doing things like reloading or uh, casting their own bullets, things like that. Again, you don't really ever hear too many stories about that. If you do, it's you know in a gun magazine or it's in a... a uh, uh, so something like uh, the NRA... You know, when they put out their magazine or some of the other uh, the other publications, 
that do that or it's, it's super uh you know maybe something like um oh what's that armed america or something like that or that uh concealed carry magazine that's about the only but again those are very specific niche programs where you don't really hear about it too much i will say that on some of the am talk radio stuff you do hear you do hear about defensive uses of guns but even there you don't hear about it as maybe often as they could you know and and with them because they are so ultra conservative right wing a lot of those things those guys sort of have their own narrative and they're speaking to their own audience you don't again there is not a lot of critical thinking that is done on those outlets they they pretend to sometimes and they'll it seems like the soup du jour, and this is a little bit of an aside, but we'll get back to it. But it seems like the soup du jour with a lot of these guys, they have become a little disenchanted. So some of the scales have fallen off their eyes a little bit with the Republican Party. Now, they'll still say that they're, oh, I'm conservative. A lot of times what they'll say is, well, I'm I'm libertarian. You know, I have very strong libertarian's belief. And the reality is a lot of these guys don't have very strong libertarian beliefs. They they may think they do, or they, they may say that because it gets them away from the Republican Party, uh, but they have what would be considered probably legitimate from their, from their standpoint, uh, conservative beliefs. I, I, would, I would describe them as, a lot of them as moderate conservatives. I wouldn't describe most of them as libertarian because a lot of them still believe in the power of the state. They, they believe in expansion of government. They say that they don't, but they believe in the expansion of uh, the surveillance state and the police state. And they believe in taxes as long as the taxes are going towards, let's say, uh, police or police enforcement agencies so you know like border patrol things like that uh, the FBI um, you know special SWAT teams all this they they have no problem paying a little bit of money more for that but again then, but then they would say well I don't want to be you know taxed for welfare programs or I don't want to be taxed for uh, to pay for public schools that uh, my kid goes to a private school or my kid goes to a charter school or why am I having to pay for the Department of Education's programs that don't work? It should be left up to the you know, individual. You know, and we can go down all these different rabbit holes. But it, it all still kind of funnels around to the media wants to tell a particular story. And in many cases, you could, you could make the argument probably that the stories, at least maybe the general outlines, I guess I should probably say, are already written. They'll maybe fill in the blanks here and there, but you, for the most part, it's all the same material. Maybe the names and the dates are changed a little bit, but you're going to get that exact same narrative. And the reason I bring that stuff up is, again, we have seen in the past when somebody who has been involved in a self-defense shooting if there are certain elements there that fit the narrative to cast that person in a negative light and to further the agenda and the narrative that they want to tell. So if it is race A has, a, has shot and killed race B 
it doesn't matter whether or not it was justified. They're going to sort of spin it a different way. And now, and it, it can go, it, it can be spun along lines of race, along lines of gender, along lines of religion. Uh, so if religion A is under attack, well, that's fine. But if it's religion B, well, you can never say a bad word about religion B or you're a, uh, some type of an ist, you know, uh, whatever you're, you're, uh, you're spreading hate. But if it's, a, if it's a, you know, again, religion A or B, it's okay to maybe m- make fun of those religions a little bit. We're seeing a, oh, a little bit of an increase in uh, people that are against um, uh, Christians. We're also seeing a little bit of an increase of rhetoric against people that are Jewish. We still see... Um, a, a increase in the rhetoric against people who are Islamic. Now, having said all that, you know, there still is attacks on each one of those three kind of major religions, but it seems that what the media is only interested in telling the story of is when it's an attack on, uh, for right now, on, on Islamic religion. And they don't take any type of a a critical. Uh, they don't put it through a critical filter, I guess. So they don't say, "Well, in Christianity, they believe you know they don't like gays, or they don't like this." And in Judaism, they don't like this, or they think that. In Islam, they again they don't like gays, they don't like that, but they don't ever sort of bring that stuff up. And again, this is sort of the mainstream media. So again, let's let's sort of roll it back and talk a little bit what happens if you are in a self-defense shooting and you your situation the circumstances of it happens to fit the narrative that the press wants to exploit well you unless it is almost 100 percent completely justified so you somebody was shooting up a bunch of nuns and orphans and and you happen to come to the rescue uh, or you happen to be there at the same the same day at the museum that it was you know nuns and orphans day and somebody's going in there to shoot the place up and you happen to uh, shoot the shoot the killer who happened to be of a certain religion or was a race that was different than yours and so they can exploit that well, unless you have sort of this unicorn type event that happens, they're probably going to crucify you. And then public opinion will be swayed. The uh, police or the prosecutor's office may feel the pressure and they just want it to go away. So they're going to throw, they don't care about you at all. They don't care whether it was justified. And they're going to throw you on sort of the sacrificial altar and you're going to burn to get the heat off of them. And, and we've seen stuff like this before. We've seen stuff where a lot of times a lot of people that are pro-gun tend to be pro-police or pro-law and order, however you want to say it. And it's hard for them to fathom that, well, I'm a, I'm a law-abiding gun owner and I got involved in this. This person attacked me and ended up shooting him. And now they're going to prosecute me. Well, they don't tend to think that 
that person who is the county attorney or the district attorney or the prosecutor, they don't think, oh, that guy is interested in a win and he's interested in convicting me. He doesn't, he's anti-gun. You know, they, that kind of stuff doesn't really cross their mind. So having said all that stuff, just keep this stuff in mind when we talk about sort of the Smollett case. And again, the, the narrative that he was spinning, even though it was super fishy and super sketchy, fit what those guys wanted to, in the media, wanted to have go out there. Let's talk a little bit about what the actual prosecutor did. I think her name is Kim Fox. And to do that, what we need to do is talk about how, and I don't know what they call her, if they call her the the district attorney, if they call her the county attorney, if they call her county prosecutor, what they do. But anyway, the way that it usually works in the county that you reside in, you have one person who is that district attorney or one person who is the chief prosecutor and everybody else who works in that office and under them are deputy district attorney or deputy county attorneys. So, and it's the same way that how you have a sheriff and everybody else is a deputy sheriff. But you have one person who's the sheriff for that county. So it's the same for for the for the and out here we call them county attorneys so that's probably the term that I'll use because uh, I'll just kind of default to that so out here you know we have one person I live in Arizona by the way uh, we have you know that one person who is the that elected official and ultimately you could say well that person can sort of decide on how things go on super high profile cases that person may make the decisions on this is how we're going to proceed. It looks like in the case of Smollett and in the case of the lady um, Kim Fox, she, I believe, is that elected official. So she is not somebody who is just the average the county attorney that you know does their job sort of nine to five type thing and puts on trials. So she may be able and hire profile cases to decide you know what this is what we're going to do this is how we're going to proceed and when we're talking about how things get charged so the way that it works in most places is the police are are going to arrest you or or they're going to refer you for whatever charge so let's say that you were uh, you had shoplifted something or stole a car or whatever or that you, you know, were out past, if you were uh, under the age of 18, you were out past curfew, you got caught. Let's say, let's do it this way. Let's say you're still an adult, but you're not of drinking age. You get caught with liquor or something like that. So the police may charge you with that. And they, they might arrest you and give you a ticket or give you a citation. And then you've got a court date. And they would say, okay, we're going to, well, actually, they don't get a court date right away. Basically what happens is, let's say, the police have arrested you. They give you a citation on that citation. It says, you know, basically wait to hear back from the county attorneys. Normally what happens a lot of times is that stuff goes to them. And within a couple of days, they do a thing what they call grading, meaning that they're going to decide sort of what's going to happen. So at this point, the county attorney can do one of several 
different things. They can either say, ah, you know what? This looks like a good case. We're going to go ahead and proceed. We're going to do an initial court hearing. We're going to set it for this date. We'll send out the stuff. And then they'll go forward from there. Or they can say, hmm, you know what, uh, Mr. Policeman here? You guys did kind of a crummy job. We think there's something here, but you guys need to go back and either do some interviews or rearrange the evidence, make it to where when we do go to court, we can say that this guy did it. Uh, Or they can do another thing where they say, you know what, at this time, the cost of prosecution would outweigh the benefit to society. Uh, Or they can say, well, this person may be eligible And so they would drop the charges. They would dismiss the charges at that point. Or they could do a thing where they would say, oh, this particular case, because of the nature of it, and maybe because there is no no victim, maybe it's more of a status crime. So again, we're looking at that 19-year-old kid who gets caught with a six-pack of beer in his car, and he's, you know, he and his buddies... We're sitting in a in a abandoned or not abandoned, but a, a a target, you know, parking lot at three in the morning, and they're just you know they're not being rowdy or anything, but they're sitting in the car or they're sitting in the back of the truck and they're just drinking a few beers and kind of BSing the night away. And the cops come and give that guy a ticket. Well, what they may say is, oh, you know what? Yeah, this guy was drinking, and yeah, it's illegal, but there's really no victim here. There's nobody to make restitution to. Society really is not going to benefit if we, you know, put this guy in jail for for two weeks or 30 days or something like that. So what let's do is let's put him through a diversion program. And the way that the diversion programs are supposed to work is that you, it's a, it's a case for just like that. It's something that's kind of small where you're like, you know what, we don't need to get this dude in the system or this girl in the system, whoever. We don't think that they're probably the likelihood of them reoffending is going to be pretty low, and our resources are best spent somewhere else. And so we'll send them through a diversion program now. And usually the way that the diversion program work, and when I was a juvenile probation officer years ago, we had a diversion program, and the way that it would work is, again, let's say you came in for curfew or you came in again for the liquor charge you're going to sit down with uh, me or somebody like me who's a probation officer that's how it worked where I was and I will talk with you and say okay well the police said on this date that you were you guys were out you were caught you know drinking a bunch of beer in your in your vehicle is that true and at that point if you say yeah it was me you basically are taking responsibility for it. I would then assign you some type of a consequence. I would say, oh, you know, here's this program that talks about drinking or here's this. And so I'm going to have you do that. And I'm also going to have you do eight hours of community service. Come back to me in 60 days and have a certificate that you completed that program and also have a certificate that you did your community service hours which could be, you know, volunteer work at a animal shelter or something, you know, something like that. Basically just kind of give them back to the community. And you normally you would have a list of things that would be approved of that you could do. 
uh, so that you, if your uncle owned a machine shop, you couldn't go and sweep up the floors for him because that's a private business. But if you knew somebody who worked at an animal shelter or you could maybe volunteer at a uh, at, at, uh, boys and girls club or you could go and help clean up a city park or, you know, pick up trash, you know, at, at, a, at a place like that. We used to have people do all, all sorts of stuff like that for community service hours. So what it's not for, though, is for somebody who is, who is doing something that is a more of a serious nature. So if you have somebody who is stealing cars, if you have somebody who is, uh, in, the, in the case of if we looked at Smollett, somebody like him, normally the uh, lying to the police or, or, or bringing false allegations, all that type of stuff, is in some cases can be considered a felony. So if you're if you're perpetrating a hoax, if you're doing all this other, and normally it's more if, if you're if, if there's somebody else who's a victim. Now in his case, he was the supposed victim, and so the 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 victim of his false reporting would normally be the state, and they would and the police would say, oh, you know, they they uh, you lied to us, you false reported, that's a crime, you need to be prosecuted for that, uh, and then they're also going to do some stuff which I think is kind of BS, which is they're going to say, and you owe us money, like they're trying to do to him, you owe us one hundred thirty thousand dollars for this investigation that we did. Well. Those police are there regardless, and they're getting paid regardless. They're getting you know this, that, and the other thing. So I doubt if it really was one hundred thirty thousand dollars worth of investigative stuff that was going on, and it would almost have to be one hundred thirty thousand worth of overtime stuff that they would have to do and show that they went above and beyond, so that there would have to have been like a special task force, and you know we brought in special investigators and had to pay them and put them up and do all this other stuff. And unless they did that, then I don't think, I, I, I think it's kind of a, a bogus claim uh, because the police are there. So in theory, I get, they're there anyway and getting paid anyway. So in theory, I guess you could say if there were any victims to his false report, it would probably be, oh, you could maybe say it, 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 it's that taxpayer expense and you could say that the police that were involved in his investigation were taken away from other investigations. And that, you know, would be kind of about it for me. That would be about the only thing that I would say that would be sort of a legitimate, maybe, you know, maybe a legitimate thing that you could say. But again, a lot of times the police are there anyway, and they're getting paid no matter what. So, So normally I think that he probably, due to the nature of what he, when they did the investigation and say, no, he lied to us, he needs to be charged with, you know, false reporting and obstruction, all this other stuff. I think that normally he probably would not have gone through diversion. And I think what happened is how, for whatever reasons, some strings were pulled for him. He was allowed to forfeit his bond I think his bond or his bail was a hundred thousand dollars, of which he paid ten thousand. You have to pay ten percent. Uh, he forfeited that, and then they had him do some community service type things. 
they also then sealed the records and this is where we see that the um, the prosecutor is sort of getting into a little bit of trouble because I think that um, the, when you do this stuff it's not that this stuff never happens but there are certain procedures that have to be done you don't just sort of get to do whatever now Having said that, a lot of times you do get to do whatever because they're not high profile and nobody is really looking over your shoulder. Most of the time, the police are not going to go out and give press conferences and say, oh, this guy lied to us and we want him, you know, specially prosecuted. The reason they're doing this is because they've got sort of egg on their face a little bit and they don't want to be seen as being part of a... Uh, Part of a cover-up so they're really starting to distance themselves um, they are trying to get sort of the stink of this whole thing off of them now the reality is in a couple of months all this will go away the, and like i said the police are going after him for money uh, again the hundred thirty thousand that they're 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 throwing out there doesn't really mean anything in, in, in the uh, budget of that police department it really wouldn't mean anything uh, and again, they're doing it to sort of send a message, hey, don't lie to us. If you do, you know, you're going to be in big trouble, that type of thing. So if they're willing to sort of do all this stuff for him, what would they be willing to do when they really feel it's a righteous cause? And I don't know how connected small it is. I don't know, you know, what's going on. Again, I think that Probably the the prosecutor in this case, or the, the the lead attorney, this Kim Fox, probably thought, ah, we'll make a few backdoor deals, we'll seal this stuff up. But then it was it was too high profile a case. If she had been a smart political creature, she would have said, well, look, here's I'll try and do what I can, but this is so high profile, we're not going to be able to do a whole lot. Maybe we can do stuff where on the outside the outsiders it really looks like we're hammering this guy but you know quietly behind the scenes we'll we'll do things that really aren't that bad so an example of something like that is we we used to have a thing that was termed a, it was called an open felony and what would happen is let's say that you had shoplifted over i don't know something that was worth like 280 dollars or something like that at the time, anything over $250 in value, uh, they, they considered that like a felony. And let's say that you had done that, but the store eventually got their stuff back, but it's still the value of the thing that you're taking. So you had taken some, you know, some expensive earrings or you had, you know, there was an open case in a jewelry store and you had taken a, a diamond ring or something like that. What can happen is a lot of times they'll have an open felony. Well, they'll say, okay, you go through court, you're going to admit to this, you're going to be found guilty, and we're going to kind of hold the classification of this felony. And if you go through uh, a normal term of probation, whether that's six months or a year, you do all the stuff you, we want you to do, you don't commit any new crimes, at the end of that, we will come back to court, and at that hearing... You're still going to be found guilty of the shoplift, but we're going to drop it down to attempted shoplift and it's just going to be a misdemeanor so that you're not going to have an actual felony on your record. 
And I think they probably could have done something like that for him had they wanted to sort of do some of the kind of backdoor things. And it, it seems like they did give him special treatment. And again, I know I'm talking about this stuff a lot, but it does kind of fascinate me, especially having been sort of in the field and knowing how, how things work. Um, and it's, and look, it's, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibilities to say that some of these people can, who are in the judicial system can get sort of bedazzled by somebody who is in the entertainment industry and will maybe want to give them special privilege and say, oh, maybe I can use this and I can meet other people or I can, you know, do different things, stuff like that. So, um, let's see. I think we're going to kind of wrap it up on that. And I know that's kind of a lot of long rambling, but I did want to talk about it. I did kind of want to get my thoughts down on there. What are your guys' thoughts about it? What do you think should happen to this guy? Uh, some people would say, oh, we should, you know, lock him up and throw away the key and, and uh, you know, bury him under the courthouse, that type of thing. But you have to say, well, in that case, and, and what I always try and look at is, does the punishment fit the crime? You know, are you going to have him do, would you want him to do 10 years in prison when somebody who murders somebody gets out? And I know those are two, you know, big extremes, but again, you have to say, okay, well, what, what about his crime? Who was the victim? Who was harmed? Who had their property destroyed? Who had, who was attacked? Who, you know, who was injured? That type of thing. And if you look at his crime, nobody lost property. Nobody... Um, was injured, nobody was harmed, nobody was stolen from. Uh, again, we would say that the victim in this case would be the state. So maybe you have a different opinion of mine. Um, maybe you think that, and, and maybe if you're out there, you live out there in that area, you sort of know how things work a little bit better. What's your opinion on that? Or, or is some of the things that maybe how things are done out here, is it very, very different than how things are done out in Chicago area. Now, it also seems on this Kim Fox that they are, the bar is looking at her. Again, this may be more politically motivated where maybe if, if this stuff would have been found out, they would have handled it kind of quietly and given her maybe a, a little bit of a slap on the wrist or a little bit of a censure type. You know, we're going to put a letter in your, in your bar file, that type of thing. Whereas now because of the, the, uh, public nature and the um, the infamy, I guess you could say, for lack of a better term, of the case, we're going to see that everybody is going to be kind of made an example of. Uh, but it doesn't seem like Smollett is going to be made too much of an example of. Like I said, probably a couple of months, all this stuff will go away. He will sort of be deemed a hero to the people who want to believe that narrative. And another thing, and this is another thing that is probably the most important point of everything that I'm going to talk about, is that people who eat, who would believe and they would say, oh, yeah, this guy made all this stuff up. It was all a lie. But that doesn't matter because... His, even though it's a lie, it, shed, it sheds light on a, a huge, massive problem that we have and that we need to deal with. And it doesn't matter that 
nothing nothing happened to this guy at all because the ends do justify the means and because you know this is an example of what somebody like a Donald Trump or what somebody like you know his administration does to people and brings out to people it brings out all this hate and all that you know Jesse was doing was shining a light and showing that and the reason that people are mad at him is because he's shining that light but you know don't don't kill the messenger and that's how a lot of people are going to view him and, and that is something that I that I find uh, is, is fascinating that is something that we see a lot with the people that are anti-gun we see that they constantly spout uh, statistics and their version of facts you know there are things that they say oh this is this is exactly what happened this is uh, you know, there, there are X amount of this type of a shooting when it's like, well, not really. And an example of that would be when they were talking about, and I forget the exact number, but we'll say they said, oh, there were a hundred, just to keep the number simple, there were a hundred shootings on schools this in the last three months. And then when you actually look at the numbers, you're like, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's not what happened at all. Uh, some of the shootings were, you know, a guy was in the parking lot after hours and shot himself or people, there were nearby gunfires and a, and a bullet or gun battles or something at night or something. And a bullet happened to go into a school or somebody shot up the school when nobody was there. And so when you really kind of look at, you know, are, are these claims legitimate? What you find is no, they are not. But the press and the people who report this stuff would say, well, there is, technically it is true. And even though we know it is a lie, now they would never say this this way, but they would, you know, they say, even though we know there's part of them that says, yeah, I know it's not true. Yeah, I know it's misleading. Yeah, I know it's taken out of context, but it does shed light on a problem that we have. And therefore, because it does that, I can go to bed at night and sleep like a baby because I am doing something that is for the greater good. Maybe everything I said was all made up, but if it gets us another gun law, if it gets us a magazine restriction, if it gets us a ban on semi-automatic rifles, if it gets the AK-47 taken away, well, then it's all worth it. Because at the end of the day, once those things are gone, I will actually be saving lives. And, you know, that's how these people think. So, anyway, I am about done with my driving around here. Hopefully this part of it wasn't too rambling. Uh, Sometimes I do kind of get off on little uh, tangents and things, especially when I'm driving because I'm just kind of blah, 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 blah. And I circle around and do things and repeat things sometimes. So, anyway, I would love to know what you guys think of the uh, situation in California. What do you think that's going to mean long-term as far as, so they, they said that the magazine ban was no bueno, but now California is coming back and saying, well, you know, we're going to have to, we, we still don't want anybody to be able to import them or buy them or sell them or trade them, that type of thing. What do we think is going to happen is I I think it will probably go back, if I understand it right, to the Ninth Circuit. They will probably say, oh, this other judge, you know, made the wrong ruling 
and the uh, the magazine restriction ban is going to be is legit and will stay in place. And then I think they're going to maybe probably take that up to a higher court. Will it go up to the Supremes? Eh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but what what do you guys think? What do you think is going to happen with that? Also with the Smollett case or other cases where you've heard about things where somebody gets favoritism or where somebody kind of would be interesting too, where somebody gets basically crucified because of maybe them being pro-gun or because they were just, you know, a, a gun owner type thing. Um, there was a story, and I'll, I'll end with this, and I can't remember the details of it, but there was a story a long time ago about a man, and he had, somebody had broken to his house, and he had ended up shooting the guy and I think killing him, and the press was sort of all over him. It was uh, a thing where it kind of fit their narrative. And then the next day or two, because the police took his, uh, I think it was a shotgun that he had used, took his shotgun into evidence, which they're going to do, he went out and he bought another one. Well, the press basically followed him to the gun store and they were kind of harassing him, like, why are you buying this? Why are you doing this? You know, aren't, you know, and basically we're, we're painting him sort of as this bloodthirsty killer who was, couldn't wait to get another gun to be able to shoot somebody else. And the fact of the matter was, is that the guy was like, well, I live, I still live in a rough neighborhood. I need to be able to defend myself. And I also maybe am fearing a little bit of retaliation. And this is stuff that came out later, of course, but they kind of, you know, ambushed the guy a little bit, that type of stuff. So anyway, let me know if there are some other stories like that, if you guys know of any. I'll go ahead and give you that contact information again, which is area code, uh, the voicemail area code 206-745-2731. Email address, firearmscafe at protonmail.com, all one word, firearmscafe at protonmail.com to send in your email or if you want to send in an audio recording, I would love to play that stuff for you, get your guys' voices out on the air. All right, my friends, I will wrap it up, and I will talk to you next time.